The scripture passage I want to call your attention to returns us to uh, the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, what we'll be looking at this morning. And just to remind you as we uh, come to 1 Timothy that in the New Testament there are actually five messages to the church at Ephesus. First uh, and Second Timothy are letters that are written specifically to uh, the one that Paul has uh, left there as the lead pastor of the church. First and Second Timothy, uh, written to Timothy as well as to the church of, as a whole. Paul's very first uh, message to Timothy recorded uh, in the New Testament is actually in Acts chapter 20, uh, from verses 17 on, when the apostle calls for the elders of Miletus to come and meet him on the seacoast, the elders of Ephesus to meet him at Miletus on the seacoast. <clears throat> And there we have an incredible passage where Paul reminds them that day and night for three years, house to house, uh, he did not uh, hesitate in any manner to declare to them the whole counsel of God. And then he warned them with tears that uh, savage wolves were going to arise even from their own midst uh, to afflict the church. And then the last message that we, we, we have, uh, well, the fourth message is the book of Ephesians course, the book of Ephesians. But the last message you find in Revelation chapter 2, the first letter of the seven letters is uh, Jesus speaking to the church at Ephesus. And there his concern is not only the faithfulness to right doctrine, but they had fallen from their first love. And so I will just remind you again that the theme that we're looking at as we move through 1 Timothy is the theme of gospel truth and gospel love, uh, really taken out of verse 5 in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul says that he's charging Timothy uh, that the, the aim of our charge is love from a pure heart and a sincere conscience, uh, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So we come now to this passage with that kind of prefacing where we are. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Father, we... We come to this text this morning, this passage, confessing uh, this is your word, uh, holy your word, completely your word, written by apostles and prophets and men that you've raised up to write these things. Yet, in the final analysis, uh, the truth that is contained herein is your truth, your truth to us, infallible in all of its truth, infallible in all of its dimensions, uh, every word. Uh, breathe forth from you, this we confess. So give us hearts that properly respond to the nature and authority of your word. It is you speaking to us. Open up our eyes to see. Open up our hearts to obey what you've given us. We pray that increasingly we would become more of what Jesus wanted his disciples to be, salt and light. Help us then uh, to do the best to be representatives of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, to our own generation. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Now, uh, some 30 years ago, so this is back in the 1980s, the United Methodist Church uh, established a hymnal revision committee. And I think they might have placed the uh, most sensitive consciences on this committee, sensitive to things that um, you and I might not be so sensitive to. Because uh, their final recommendation was this. We think that these two hymns ought to be taken out of the hymnal. Um, The Battle Hymn of the Republic and Onward Christian Soldiers. Their reasoning was that this militaristic language was unbecoming of the Prince of Peace. And that the kind of Christianity that Christians ought to live according to today ought to be completely pacifistic in our understanding of all things. We need to follow the Prince of Peace. And the language we use to describe God and the language that we use to describe one another and the language that we use to describe the Christian faith ought to follow along this theme of Christ the Prince of Peace. Well, better minds prevailed. Uh, The denomination responded as a whole in a biblical manner. And and what won the day were biblical arguments. The Bible itself presents God in warlike metaphors. The Bible itself presents Christians in soldier-like metaphors. The Bible itself presents the Christian life as an intensive conflict best understood as warfare. Now, we come to this passage here where the Apostle Paul introduces this idea and concept with respect to his young protege, his spiritual child in the faith, Timothy, to understand the essential nature of his calling and the calling of the church and his equipping and the equipping of the church. Now, you might think that we have just verses 18, 19, and 20 here, so it's just a snap for Randy to preach through those three verses just like that. But the truth is there are three sermons here. And uh, the three sermons are going to be organized around these three ideas. First, we must recognize that there is a war. That's today's message. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the fact that there's an imperative here. We must wage this war, this good war. We must engage deeply in this warfare. And then thirdly, We must war against the enemies of the gospel, the enemies of Christ. So this morning we're just going to look at that one concept that we must recognize, recognition that there is a war. But let me state that in in the full manner that I want us to understand it as it applies to us as Christians. To live gospel-centered lives, which is the, the underlying theme of what Paul is writing to Timothy, to live lives that are centered in the gospel, centered in the person and work of Christ, centered with a full commitment to gospel truth and gospel love, we must see the Christian life as a spiritual war. We must recognize the Christian life as a spiritual struggle, a spiritual conflict, a spiritual war. And as we do so, we need to make sure that those thoughts are consistently connected to this larger underlying theme. Spiritual warfare is deeply connected to a full commitment to gospel truth and gospel love. 
Always the truth of Christ, always the love of Christ must control how we think about the Christian life. So this morning, with respect to this, I want us to first look at the Christian's calling in light of the idea that there's a war, and then the Christian's equipping in light of the fact that there is this war, and then thoroughly some applications that are connected to these ideas. Now, let me mention the main idea once again. And I need an adjustment on my mic very quickly, because as I move, I am hitting this thing with my sweater. John, if you'll please come to this. Edit that off the uh, recording, will you? <laughs> thank you. Now, John, thank you very much. So let's state this again. Uh, to live a gospel-centered life with a full commitment to the truth of Christ and the love of Christ, we must see the Christian life as a spiritual war there. Now, to begin with, the calling. <clears throat> the Christian's calling is to this war. And it is a good war because it's for the sake of the gospel. It's for the sake of the gospel faith. Now, this way of looking at the Christian life, uh, it's, it's given to us frequently in the New Testament. I'm going to give you just two examples. Uh, Jude, verse 3, only has one chapter. So Jude, verse 3, listen to this. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down unto the saints. Now, the, the Greek word here, one word, contend earnestly, uh, can apply to any kind of physical or emotional or intellectual or spiritual conflict. But the main idea is that this is about conflict. Contend earnestly in the light of conflict. And, of course, war is the essence of conflict. Paul is saying, or Judah is saying, all of us who share this common Christian faith, I'm telling you, contend earnestly for it. Contend earnestly for what God has done in Christ. Contend earnestly for it. The Christian life is not a Sunday afternoon nice walk in the park. That's the implication. The Christian life engages us in a deep struggle and we're commanded to contend earnestly in that conflict. Second example, um, an example known to the Ephesians. Now, understand that if Paul went from house to house for three years teaching them the whole counsel of God, which in the book of Acts, we understand that's what Paul did, then the things that we find written in the book of Ephesians are not things which the Ephesian Christians first learned about. That would be a huge mistake. Because how could Paul teach them the whole counsel of God and then write a letter to them saying, oh, by the way, uh, although I thought I taught you the whole counsel of God, there's a number of things that I still need to teach you. No, what we find in the book of Ephesians is a repetition of things that Paul had already catechized the church at Ephesus in for three years 
night and day, house to house with tears. So, the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, verses 10 through 19, make it very clear that the calling of a Christian is a calling to engage in spiritual warfare. Look at verses 10, 11, and 12. He writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, the scriptures as a whole, the New Testament in particular, consistently ascribes the evil that is in this world today as having its origin and its power outside of this world of human beings. That which is evil in humanity <clears throat> is exacerbated and aggravated and stimulated and, and essentially empowered by the world that you and I can't see, that the New Testament describes as this present darkness. If all of that was gone, if the presence of the demonic and satanic was gone out of this world, then utopian ideas might be achievable. They really might be. But every utopian idea that you have seen in the last 2,000 years is itself a satanic stratagem designed to blind people and to put them in bondage. And we've seen this again and again and again. Now, when Paul speaks to this, the whole armor, Ephesians chapter 6, clearly he's saying all Christians are called to a spiritual war. They're called, this is their calling to engage in a spiritual warfare. The chief focus in one sense of the Christian life is engagement in this spiritual war. We've got to do this in order to have a faithful Christian witness and a faithful Christian testimony. Now, what we see here for Christians generally, likewise we see this for Timothy, what Paul says to Timothy. His calling is to this warfare. So Timothy is called in verse 18 to wage the good warfare. To wage the good war. Literally, it's to war the good war. It's used as a verb and it's used as a noun. War the good war. This is actually repeated twice in the book of 1 Timothy. If you go to chapter 6, verse 14, you see Paul stressing the same concept using different words from the Greek language. So in chapter 6, it's, it goes this way. Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Fight the good fight. The words are different. The conflict is exactly the same. The picture that we get that Paul presents to us of Timothy, though, and really for any Christian by extension, is basically this. Timothy, called to be a soldier, called to engage in an ongoing campaign in a war that is a good war, but a necessary war. Good from the standpoint that it's good that we engage in it. Good from the standpoint that what we're doing is good and holy and just. Not good from the other side. <laughs> There's no goodness in the other side of this war. It's a one-sided goodness. But nevertheless, it is good that we would be engaged in it. It's good that we would pursue this because the goodness of our warfare represents what? 
God himself as the man of war who war against the sin and brokenness of this world. So whether it's for someone like Timothy, who's called to be the lead pastor, the lead shepherd of the church, whether it's any Christian, our calling clearly from this, we're to be like soldiers engaged in a long campaign, a spiritual war on behalf of Christ and on behalf of his gospel. The second thing this passage presents to us is the equipping. The fact that Scripture teaches us that we are equipped spiritually in order to engage in this spiritual warfare. Now, once again, how do we see this generally within the New Testament? Well, Ephesians chapter 6 again, the rest of the armor of God from 13 through 19, where Paul speaks about uh, being equipped with a belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, uh, feet that are shod with the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, uh, to use that to stop the flaming missiles of the evil one, uh, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, the picture here, Paul has obviously taken this from the standard uh, militaristic accoutrement of a Roman soldier. This is what's in Paul's mind. He's picturing the way a Roman soldier would be properly garbed for battle. So what Paul is telling us here is that this Roman soldier who's equipped full defensively, full offensively, the complete armor, describes what God has for us so that we can be fully equipped defensively, offensively, to engage in this spiritual battle. Second key example from the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. Here's what Paul writes. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, because the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Now, Paul is saying, and it's important for us to realize this, that we're engaged in a war, and the nature of this war is such that it is not according to the flesh. Which is to say, this is not a worldly kind of war, of which... Every citizen of the Roman Empire was intimately acquainted. Uh, unless you were a Roman citizen and you were an Italian, uh, your Roman citizenship, or not having Roman citizenship, but you were living with the confines of the Roman Empire, you or your family or recent generations of, of people were intimately connected with war. Uh, that's how the Roman Empire got to be the dominant force on the face of the earth at that time. Uh, many of the peoples outside of Italy, all of those peoples have been conquered by the Roman legions. War was an intimate historical and often an intimate contemporary uh, reality to New Testament people, that era, and to New Testament Christians. 
So they know what worldly warfare, warfare according to the flesh, looks like. Paul exhorts them here. Our warfare is not that. And our weapons are not that. Our weapons are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. They're spiritually energized by God because ultimately the enemy we face is not a flesh and blood enemy. Now, we're not equipped then for these human, fleshly, worldly kinds of battles. We're equipped with that which is divinely powerful from God. And so the point is, the New Testament teaches us through the armor of God and through this passage and other passages, God equips his people to do the spiritual battles they need to do. Likewise, what Paul says to Timothy. He's going to speak to Timothy's equipping. He does this in verse 18. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. Now listen carefully. In accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them, meaning those prophecies, you may wage the good warfare. Paul is telling Timothy that he's been equipped in and through these prophecies that were spoken about him in order to wage this good warfare. Now, candidly, you can consult any number of commentaries. We don't know the content of these prophecies that were prophesied over Timothy at this particular time that Paul is making reference to. In fact, Paul refers to this uh, time in Timothy's life a second time in this book, in chapter 4, verse 14. Paul says to Timothy, Do not neglect the gift, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands upon you. Now, the best interpretation of that verse is Presbyterian, which is to say the recognition that the council of elders here is in fact the manner in which uh, those who were called to ministry were ordained to ministry, uh, which was with the special laying on of the hands of the elders upon those who were specifically set apart and called particularly to the office of shepherding within the church, the office of elder and shepherding within the church. Now, uh, Timothy had been a set apart for that, and during the time that uh, God was still giving divine revelation through human prophets, prophecies had been made about him. And at that particular point of ordination in Timothy's life, as prophecies are being given, he's given some kind of particularly important, significant spiritual gift to enable him to do the ministry that he's called to do. And so Paul links this together back in chapter 1 and says, uh, you were equipped, uh, and by these prophecies uh, in which you were equipped, you are to wage this good warfare. Now, now think about this. Um, it's like what happened with the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul is called and then set apart, uh, God spoke prophecies that spoke about the future of his life. But God also equipped Paul to be the greatest of all apostles, the greatest of all New Testament te teachers. 
In fact, if you've ever stopped to think about it, there is more of the Bible except the law of Moses and the stories of Moses, the first five books. There's more of what Paul has written in the New, in the New Testament than in all the Bible. So clearly, the spiritual equipping of Paul was designed to enable Paul to fight the good faith, to promote the gospel of Christ, and to defend it against all spiritual enemies. But likewise, Timothy has been so equipped. There's, there's that which was given to Timothy in order for Timothy to do what God had called him to do. We don't know exactly what it was. We don't know specifically what it was. We just know that Paul is exhorting Timothy to know, you have been equipped. And this equipment comes from the Holy Spirit through the hands of the elders as they ordained you to ministry. Now, how would this impact the believers at Ephesus to be reminded of this? Well, a couple of thoughts. To read or to hear Timothy read to the church what Paul is writing here would, would reinvest their confidence in Timothy as their lead shepherd and pastor. Here is someone that the Spirit of God has equipped to lead this church, to shepherd this church, and to wage war on behalf of the gospel and God's people spiritually. It would have encouraged them to have confidence in the ways in which God establishes his spiritual leadership for the sake of the church. They would also know that Timothy's been properly equipped, properly called, properly equipped to do all that God would want him to do. Now, the reason, the reason why we know that uh, what Paul says to Timothy here would be of great encouragement to the Ephesians is because we know what Paul told the Ephesians themselves about calling and equipping. He's given them the armor. He's reminded them of what God has done to equip them fully for their spiritual engagement. But there's also something so very, very fundamental that the Ephesians know about Timothy and about the Christian life. And this is found in the second letter to Timothy. And once again, I'm going to remind you that nothing contained in 2 Timothy is absolutely new to the Ephesians. They know the spiritual biography of their pastor. Uh, you can well imagine that no New Testament church had pastors and elders for whom there was no biography about their lives. The only way we can actually ascertain whether men are properly to be elders, to be shepherds, is to know their spiritual biographies intensely and deeply. I say that to all of you. I say that specifically to the search committee. You must know the spiritual biographies 
of the man that you would consider to be the pastor of the church. So the church at Ephesus knows that spiritual biography, which Paul refers to then in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. So if you want to turn there. It's a very significant passage, but this is what Paul says. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Christians at Ephesus knew not just that Timothy had these sacred scriptures, but they themselves had these sacred scriptures. They knew they were profitable to them for teaching and for reproving them and for correcting them and for training them in righteousness. They knew that the scriptures were the primary means by which they would be fully equipped for every good work and specifically all the demands of spiritual warfare. Now, finish with some applications here. Whether you're speaking of someone who would be like Timothy, called a shepherd and a pastor, whether we're speaking about any member of the church, we're all called to the soldier-like calling to be engaged in spiritual warfare. The question then is how? Let me give you four thoughts. First, it's a mindset. You have to see yourself as a soldier. You have to think about yourself. Okay, for some of you, sorry. You've got to see yourself as a Marine. You've got to think about yourself as a Marine. If I don't mention that, I have slighted those who have Marine Corps training. You've got to see yourself that way. You've got to think of yourself that way. It's got to be an essential understanding of your identity as a Christian. And you must see that the, the, the war you're engaged in is the ultimate just warfare. It's on behalf of the gospel. It's for the sake of Christ. That means, secondly, that on a daily basis, you've got to armor up. On a daily basis, you've got to remind yourself of what God has provided for you to be equipped with. And, and you ought to consciously think through the panoply, the whole armor of God that God has given us. Think it through. No soldier, certainly no Marine, would ever step off the barracks into the battlefield without being fully, fully equipped, fully ready. 
What does that look like practically? How do you dress yourself in the full armor of God? With Scripture. With prayer. With reminding yourself by reading Scripture who God is. What is this world all about? Who are we? What has Christ done for us? Rehearsing again and again and again the truths of the Gospel. That's what you're called to. You're called to gospel truth, gospel love. What does this look like? Every day, thinking through, how is God going to use me this day? Because thirdly, Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk as that soldier, worthy of of the calling to this spiritual warfare to which you've been called. And that means with grace and graciousness. It means with forgiveness. It means each day seeking to love other human beings as you love yourself. And you have an an aim, an ultimate aim and an ultimate goal. Your chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So each day, what is your aim? It's to lift high the name of Jesus. To be one of those who willingly bows the knee before the name that is above every other name. With your thoughts focused always on the gospel. The gospel declared to us. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Everyone to his own way. And the Lord, the Holy Father of heaven, has laid upon his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus, the iniquity of us all. The Good Shepherd laying down his life for the sheep so that trusting In the name of Christ, we would have life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, give us soldiers' hearts in the proper sense of calling Jesus Christ our captain serving Him by the grace He Himself provides, willing to lay all in the altar of service to Him, the one who laid down His all for us. Even as we come to the table this morning, help us to see here represented to us the ultimate sacrifice of the captain of the covenant, even the Lord Jesus. Help us as we taste the bread and drink of the wine to be re-engaged in this great covenantal calling to follow Jesus, the captain of our faith, forever in his name.
reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. The Apostle Paul writes these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. I am surprised how often communion is served in which churches and pastors do not read this last sentence. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Because I want to say to you that with respect to the ordinances of worship, there is attached to the celebration of the Lord's Supper, the coming and eating and drinking, a warning that we do not find with respect to tithing or offerings or listening to the sermon or singing hymns or being here on time so you hear the call to worship. Uh, there are no warnings connected to these other aspects of the ordinary corporate worship of God's people, but there is with respect to the Lord's table. Those who do not recognize the table of the Lord and what it represents will eat and drink judgment upon themselves. If you read further, you'll read where Paul says, and that is why some of you have sickened and some of you have died. Even though the very nature of this table is designed to communicate all of the blessings of the new covenant as they come through the word of God, through the gospel. Even though this symbolizes this, if someone eats or drinks without recognizing what the table means, they eat and drink judgment upon themselves. And this is why we have said uh, routinely how vital it is for uh, you to know that you have a trusting, saving faith in Christ. If you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, verse 29 applies. You will eat and drink judgment upon yourself. At the same time, the table is designed by God to be a table of fellowship with the living God, with Christ, by means of things that are tangible, visible, things that communicate invisible realities in tangible, visible ways. Symbolically, yes, but spiritually real, nonetheless. And so eating of the bread and drinking of the fruit of the vine is a designed way by God by which he communicates to us again 
in ways that we probably can't fully understand the presence and the power of the gospel to work in our lives. So having properly fenced the table, we say, properly warned you, I now want to give you the gracious gospel invitation. If you know Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, this table is for you. You may feel so incredibly broken today, thinking you have unforgivable sin. This table is for you. It is the place to come where you commune with Christ, in which you confess your need for the body of Jesus to be broken, for the blood of Jesus to be shed for you. And to know and to believe that if you know yourself to be a sinful human being, this table is for you. If you're righteous this morning, don't come. If you're perfect, you needn't be here. But if you're a broken sinner, trusting in Jesus, this table is for you. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that Christ would be lifted up at this table and your spirit would set apart things ordinary and to the sacred purpose of testifying to us again of Christ, his cross, his work for us. The bread representing the body broken terribly on the cross for us. The fruit of the vine representing the blood shed to cover our sins. Bread and wine together, signs and seals of the new covenant that comes to us in Christ. Set apart this table Set us apart also. Renew us, re-engage us to follow our captain, the Lord Jesus, and to the calling to which you've called us. In his name, amen. On that night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body. Take, eat. After the supper, our Savior took the cup and giving thanks, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink ye all of you. Taking the cup, Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink ye all of it. It's our custom to bring our communion service to an end by first receiving an offering for our deacons fund. This particular offering is set aside for ministries of mercy. We'll receive that now, and then we'll move also to our final hymn, which is the insert, O Church of God, Arise. So let's stand and sing as well.